I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. This is Gardening with the RHS. I'm Guy Barter. The sound you're hearing is coming from an animal that's hard to spot in British gardens, the hedgehog. They're not often seen these days and have become alarmingly scarce. In fact, hedgehog numbers have plummeted by half in the UK countryside since the year 2000, according to the British Hedgehog Preservation Society. Seeing one is like something of a gardening miracle. Shortly, we'll be exploring what we can do as gardeners to protect our prickly neighbours. Also coming up in today's show, we'll be kicking off a new series celebrating some of horticulture's unsung heroes and discovering how nursery owners are busy preparing plants ready for spring. But back to hedgehogs. As gardeners, we have a big opportunity to support these snuffly creatures. I spoke to Helen Bostock, our resident wildlife expert and co-author of How Can I Help Hedgehogs, for some advice. might not know if you've got hedgehogs locally but there's definitely a few things that you can do to encourage them and if you have already got them to make your garden a real you know sort of refuge for them so they actually although they've got short little legs they do travel some way anything up to sort of one to two kilometers a night and they need a fairly wide space sort of 10 plus hectares in terms of territory so first of all they need to get into and out of your garden so have a check around your borders around the perimeter have you got fences with little holes in the bottom it only needs to be about the size of a a cd case for a hedgehog to sneak through and also you know maybe chat with your neighbors can hedgehogs get along your back gardens back gardens tend to be lovely spots for hedgehog it's not too busy and noisy not too close to the road Second thing is have a look around your garden from a hedgehog's point of view. If you were short and snuffly and had little short legs, what might be a hazard in the garden? So have you got any uncovered drains that a poor hedgehog might fall in and not get out of? Have you got a garden pond which has steep sides that, you know, would be a a drowning risk? So maybe pop a, a little ramp at the edge so they can clamber out. Is there any loose netting or any sort of litter in the garden, you know, sort of plastics, things that they could get caught in because that can be a sad hazard for poor hedgehogs in gardens 
And just generally, keep an eye out. Have you got nice high hill spaces, perhaps back of a border, big shrub, something like that, or behind a shed? And they will take up residence. You know, they will use nice little uh, secluded spots that are quite quiet, big leaf piles. They like to hunker down there and shelter in those over winter. And some gardeners have real success with making hedgehog houses as well. So if these are made out of sturdy material, something that's nice and weatherproof, and if you provide a, a little bit of enticing bedding for them, a bit of straw or some nice leaves, dry pile of leaves, then you might actually get the pleasure of having one come and hibernate in your garden. And at this time of year, people are often warned to be wary about lighting bonfires because they might harm hedgehogs. Why is that? Hedgehogs aren't the only creature at risk with our propensity to burn things. There are other creatures as well that might get harmed. But what we often do in the run-up to bonfire night, but even just through winter, is start to create a pile of material for bonfires. So that could be sticks and leaves and so on. And that, if you're a little creature looking for somewhere nice and warm, that's going to be perfect for you as well. So if you have created a pile... Just make sure you dismantle it a bit, you know, give it a good pull out the big logs or anything that's in there or the twigs just to see if there's anything hiding out under the bottom of it. And better still, do you really need to have a bonfire? Maybe have a little think about where the burning is the right thing in the first place. So, Helen, is there anything else we can do to encourage hedgehogs? Like, Can we put out a saucer of something for them to nibble if they're about? Mm, so... Usually at this time of year, we'd expect them to be snug down in some nice bedding area. If you've got a hedgehog box, they might even be in that. So they do go into a sort of sleepy mode. They're one of the few creatures that will properly hibernate in the UK. But with a mild autumn, mild winter, they can be active. So if you are seeing them in your garden... The first and most important thing to be putting out is is a good saucer of water. So don't worry about milk. In fact, that's not great for them. But water is really important. And that goes for all wildlife in the winter months. It needs to be ice free and kept as clean as you can. So every couple of days, maybe just give that a, a wash out and put some fresh in there. And then If you do see some active ones, and sometimes at the end of autumn, you can get juvenile hedgehogs, which are sort of late developing, they might be a little bit undersized and not gone into hibernation just yet. So what you can do is put out some dry cat or dog biscuits. In fact, cat cat biscuits seems to be the real de rigueur thing to put for them. It won't go mouldy. It'll tend not to encourage other things as well. And it's a very well balanced diet that actually hedgehogs are going to do best on. So, I think we've gone through hedgehogs very thoroughly here, Helen. Is there anything else you'd like to tell us about hedgehogs? Where to start, Guy? We've barely touched the surface of hedgehog loving in today, I think. There is some really interesting news out there. So, although the overall trends for hedgehogs um, in Britain has been downward, what we have got to say is that some research done in recent years suggests that actually maybe urban gardens and the urban environment is starting to turn a corner with the outlook for hedgehogs. They're still in worrying decline in more rural areas, but actually urban areas seem to be on the up. And we think, really, that that's all down to gardeners playing their role, making their gardens more hedgehog-friendly, connecting their gardens with their neighbours and just really giving them a helping hand. So let's hope that the next generation to come will get to see them in person as well. 
It was great to talk to Helen. I just love hedgehogs. I remember seeing my first one. It was hiding in the woodshed and our Jack Russell was barking at it. We shut the dog up and the hedgehog waddled off. They're extremely lovable and attractive creatures. Today we're starting a series we're going to run across several episodes as we shine a light on some untold stories and unsung heroes of horticulture from across history. These could be everyday gardeners in unusual situations or people who've achieved incredible things yet have little recognition over the years. We start with the 18th century gardener John S. Dumlin. Zara Zadie is founder of the We Too Built Britain campaign, which looks to build representation in society and wrote about him for Horticulture Week. She tells his extraordinary story. The interesting thing about John's story is that some people do voice some ethical concerns about talking about this. And you've got to remember that it didn't start in the best, in a fairy tale like way. You know, sometime around 1746, John was abducted as an eight-year-old boy from Africa and brought to Gwynedd, North Wales. And he came to live with the Wynn family of Estamplen, and he was placed in a garden to learn about gardening, crafts, floristry. And he became basically fluent in English and Welsh, and he just showed that he had so many skills. So there's two sort of bittersweet or indeed sad things about this, is that one, this little boy was taken from his family, from his community, ended up hundreds of miles away in a foreign land. And then, you know, he ended up being so talented that he could just do about any type of craftsmanship, any type of gardening. And, you know, a bit of you does wonder that in his own homeland, in a different time and social era, you know, what could he have become? On the other hand, without the winds, maybe some of these skills may never have come to light. And they gave him that freedom to actually, you know, learn about these things and work in this field of with his hands and craftsmanship. So, you know, there's, I thought I'd state that because clearly, you know, it didn't start off as a fairy tale and clearly he could have been a lot more in a different setting. So that's really his origin, if you like. In that house, basically, he fell in love with the maid, Margaret Griffith. They then eloped <laughs> to where she subsequently worked, and that didn't go down very well. And eventually they reconciled with the Wynne family. And this is where it becomes quite poignant that they were given a cottage with a huge garden called Nanharian in recognition of both their long service. And so, you know, by all accounts, he was hugely well-liked and hugely well-respected. And yeah, this love of gardening and their skill with gardening, you know, transcends all the stories. You know, and the story of John and Margaret's been has survived and has been passed down, you know, almost in folklore by generation after generation, as a kind of testament both to resilience but also to enduring love against racial and class barriers. I think it was the first mixed marriage recorded in in Wales. Most of their children stayed in the area, I think for eight, eight or nine generations later. And I think there's one of his descendants who continued to work for one of the landowners of North Wales until pretty recently. So yeah, they definitely stayed around and were very much part of the community. In 2018, he was included in Wales Online's list of 100 brilliant black Welsh people. And then in 2019, the Oxford Dictionary of National Biography introduced him 
as one of the 23 new biographies of black British people. In that citation, he was mentioned as a man who settles life experience in rural Wales, reminds us of the perversity of the historical experience of black people in Britain. What does that tell us? It tells us that he was a pioneer, you know, in a way. He, he was someone who came, built a career, a trade, fell in love, built a home, family stayed on, was accepted not only by his former people he worked for, but then the whole community. And that's important when you think about how community relations in Wales have progressed. He's one of the early success stories. The Friends of the Friendless Churches, they erected a small monument where he was buried, and they've tended to it ever since. And so over time, this has become so much more important because obviously, you know, there are not that many statues of people of colour across the whole of Wales, let alone actually not across the whole of Britain. These are people that the community decided to cherish, the community decided to memorialise, the community decided to make sure that their memory lives on. And that's all about acceptance and cohesion, expanding our version of what makes a Welshman, you know. He was the first Black Briton in North Wales, at least recorded. And now you see that he was cherished as that. He'd certainly integrated and they liked and respected him. I think the story of John and also John and Margaret is important because it's about people working together. And I think that's important today. You know, there are, we do live in difficult times, you know, in COVID-19, there are people who particularly, you know, we're talking about gardening today. So there are people who have been stranded in their homes, isolated in more rural areas. They're probably even more isolated, but gardening can bring solace. These stories can bring solace. It can make you connect to people who you think you've got nothing in common with, but they do have things in common with you because, for example, like John, they love the same things as you do. They do the same things as you. And you can find examples in what they do in other heroes that you might have. So it builds up this picture of nationhood, of community that is really inclusive and where you can take inspiration from no matter what their background. I mean, I, I'm getting inspired just talking about it because I think, you know, as someone of ethnic origin, and I grew up in a predominantly white part of Wales, I know that I was completely accepted by people around me. But I also had to navigate the fact that my skin color was different. The name, you know, Zerazaidi, it's not exactly a Jones or a <laughs> I don't exactly have the most common of Welsh surnames. So I had to navigate that. So, you know, the more stories you can find, the more you can build bridges with all sorts of people. And that's what you want. That's what you want. For me, I wanted to focus on someone who's of quite ordinary heritage, an ordinary person whose story can equally inspire. Our heroes don't always have to be famous. Our monuments don't always have to be after famous people. And in John, you can see that the community embraced him as one of them. And they built a monument, or rather a memorial, to this extraordinary, ordinary man who found love in a life in North Wales. Sarah Zadie on John is Stumbling. We'll hear more about hidden heroes of horticulture as the series progresses, including E.K. Janaki Amal, a revolutionary Indian botanist, and Thomas Fairchild, the first person to create a deliberate hybrid plant. At this time of year, and as things get colder, you might be led to think there's almost nothing to do in the garden, but I beg to differ. 
This week I've been sowing broad beans, sowing hardy peas, planting garlic and shallots, sowing bare ground of rye grass to cover it to spring, building a massive compost bin. The list goes on. Across the country, nursery owners and plants people are on their own secret growing journeys, preparing plants so we can enjoy them in the spring. I spoke to nursery owner Claire Austin, who shines a light on what she's getting up to at this time of year. We're in a nursery on the borders of Mid Wales, Powys and Shropshire. We have bare root plants in the ground, so we have irises and peonies and some perennials in the ground. So keep an eye on those. This time of year, just making sure the perennial weeds are kept down so there's nothing going to be taking off in the spring again and overtaking the crop. We also, at this time of year, we're getting bare root stock in. So the bare root perennials, they've just been potted, but they're ones that will quite happily sit in a pot through winter because the problem is pots are very susceptible to cold and frost and wet. It's not like in the ground. They don't drain as quickly as plants that are in the ground. So if you buy plants now, you must put them in the ground. Don't leave them in a pot because you're more likely to lose a plant. It's peony time. So we have peonies in pots, which were potted last year. So they're all being knocked out, cleaned up and sorted to whether they're okay or not. If you've got peonies in pots yourself, it's a good time to take them out. I don't recommend leaving them in pots for too long and repotting them, changing the soil, etc. So that's sort of the general gist for the next few weeks. Then we'll move on to other things later on. What we do then, when we've done our peony and knocking all the plants out, we start to look at the stock that is on the stock beds. It's the time when we start sorting it. So we sort things that need to be repotted come spring. We don't pot on if we can from December onwards. So our plants, uh, anything that needs repotting is put in one section. Anything that needs weeds, we move it, weed the tops, make sure they're all nice and cosy, cut back, tidied up. Um, it's the same as you do in the garden, really. In your garden, you should be removing perennial weeds. You should be taking, you can take the tops down. I don't in my garden because I like to leave somewhere for little insects you don't think about to hide in. After Christmas, we will have potted any peonies up that need to be potted because the roots will be growing. Bare root plants will start coming in from February onwards. So we start to pot more bare root. We've got a patch of plants we're going to pot up as well. So we'll dig those and we will pot those ready for sale from May onwards. Everyone thinks nothing grows in winter. That's actually totally wrong. Peonies, for instance, put on most of their root growth through the winter months. Herbaceous peonies, that is. We do have a few tree peonies and intersectional peonies. It's quite a big group. But also quite a lot of perennials. I mean, you only have to look at your garden and you think there's weeds growing, especially now. Once it gets below 10 degrees, then plants tend to slow down very much so. But if you're in an area where it's above 10 degrees most of the year, the plants will be putting on root growth. And it's really important to remember this because they're slower, but it's a great time to actually plant perennials because the soil is moist. Generally before Christmas, it's still warm. So the root growth is going to be there. So it used to be when I started in the perennial trade 30 odd years ago, you couldn't buy plants in pots. They were bare rooted plants. Uh, any plant you bought in a pot from a garden centre was in a poly bag. 
almost all our trade, well, all our trade mail order was sold between September, October and March. Then we just potted throughout the year. So it is a thing that people have forgotten that you actually plant perennials now. It's the great time, as long as it isn't, the ground isn't waterlogged, it isn't frosty, it isn't snowy, it's actually perfect time. When it comes to this time of year in my garden, I am going around and just, I've got newly planted areas, so I'm at the moment, like today, because I have a problem with grass because it's a very rural area and there's a lot of grass. So the grass keeps coming back. So I'm actually not hoeing it, but I've got a tool that has three prongs in it. And if I pull it through the soil, that will get rid of any little perennial weeds, which are going to grow all through the winter. And by the time you, especially with grass, by the time you get to spring, it just takes off. Any plants that I see that have collapsed, any perennials, tall perennials particularly, that are not going to keep the structure through the winter, I cut those back. Anything that's still got good structure. So, for instance, there's a Jerusalem sage also called Flomis rosalian. It's a lovely plant with whirls of little yellow flowers and evergreen leaves at the bottom. That keeps its structure on the flowers all winter. So don't cut that back. I leave that. It's also, you find if you look in the little, where the seeds have been, there'll be little insects, little spiders living in it. And they're all part of the ecosystem of the garden. It's really important to keep something for them to do. So that that's really my, what I do in my own garden from now until about March, or when I feel like getting onto the garden and doing other things. What I find is so nice when I go in the garden and tidy it up and then you see the the shoots of spring are already beginning to spring up and it's just getting out, just getting out and feeling the fresh air, even though it's gloomy and it's dark, just being outside for 20 minutes a day can cheer your spirits up and I, I just go walk around the garden and have a look what's going on. There's always something going on and then you get days perhaps when it be frosty or misty or snowy and that's pleasurable as well just to see the way the garden grows and think about what you're doing for next year looking at the spaces in your border where you think oh there's nothing there that's horrible I hated that I move that plant I'm thinking I'll move that in the spring I put a stick in otherwise I'll forget what I was going to do so that plant I now know has got a stick in that is come March time that's coming out well what am I going to put in a great time to plot there's lots of things that can be done at this time of year that will cheer you up and just get out Claire Austin. So many secrets in this week's show, I couldn't leave without telling you one of my own. Lots of people keep their plants in their ornamental pots all winter. I don't do that. I take the plants out, pop them in workaday plastic pots and fill up my containers with bulbs and things like pansies and primulas. Next year, those plants in workaday plastic pots will come out and go back in the clay pots for the summer. It's a great way to keep a big collection of plants without tying up lots of expensive pots and also a way of saving money so you don't have to buy new plants each year. Plants are actually better for being repotted in the spring. If you'd like to learn more on today's topics, head to rhs.org.uk forward slash podcast. Until next time, from me Guy Barter, it's goodbye.
I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply. <laughs> 